It's always good to get death threats on Mike. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 30th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined, as always, in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Do you having an okay morning? Well, uh, you know, it's okay. There's been a lot of uh, ups and downs, but I'm, I'm on the upswing right now. Oh, good. Well, yeah. that's good. That's good to hear. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 Sports Editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. What's happening? Hey, Sarah. You guys, you guys want to keep talking? That was a lot of uh, chit-chat up at the top. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jeff, how is your morning? Is your morning going okay? Yeah, all, all I wanted was you to ask me the same question, and my morning's going great, and I really appreciate you asking. Thank you, Sarah. All right, then. Oh, my. I want to talk really briefly about a couple of longstanding sports records that fell this past week, one on the track and two in the pool. At the USA Track and Field Outdoor Championships on Sunday in Des Moines, Iowa, Dalia Muhammad ran the 400-meter hurdles in 52.2 seconds, breaking the world record of 52.34 seconds set 16 years earlier. Two days before that, swimmer Caleb Dressel set a new world record in the 100-meter butterfly, breaking the record set by Michael Phelps in 2009. And two days before that, another record of Michael Phelps was broken by Hungarian swimmer Christoph Milak. So here's my question. Which is more impressive, breaking a record in swimming or breaking a record in track? The answer is track. If you look at the course of these records in the pool, they they break constantly. They break every Olympics. They break a lot of world championships, whereas you'll really see some track records hang around for a long time. Whether that comes down to like swimsuit technology or things going on in the pool, I know there's always like you know, claims of currents in some of these pools, um, which you can't really see in the track. I mean, actually, sometimes you do see in the track with like wind aided times. They always denote those when wind is involved in the track times. Yeah. Well, this being hot takedown, I wanted to uh, bring some numbers to what you were saying, Jeff. Uh, So I found a BBC story from around the 2016 Olympics where they talked to Canadian swimming coach and blogger Rick Madge, who says that since 1972, roughly 10% of the Olympic track and field events resulted in new world records. And at swimming, it was about 40%. Oh, wow. Uh, And in addition to that, it's not just uh, like when sprinters have a new record, they shave like fractions of a second off of the old record, whereas some of these swimming records have been beaten by one or two seconds. So it does seem to be sort of night and day between the two uh, disciplines, the, the two types of events, which is funny because I think as observers, we do lump them together because it's like humans trying to push human mm-hmm. boundaries of speed uh, in a, you know, in a medium or running on a on a surface. But against the clock, you know, not a, uh, it's one of those absolute timed sports. And so you wouldn't, on the face of it, think that there would be that much of a difference. But there is. I guess I'm, I'm impressed by the swimming ones, though, just because 
Phelps had had those records for a while. I mean, 10 years is a long time to hold a record in swimming, right? And actually, the um, 200-meter butterfly, he had held the record in that continuously since 2001. He kept breaking his own record, but he was the fastest in it, you know, all the way back to 2001. Which So that seemed impressive to me that those records have fallen. Michael Phelps now just holds only one world record. Just, you Sad know, Phelps. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see if that one holds on. You just go down the list of the major, you know, like Olympic swimming events and the oldest one's like 2009 for the 50 meter freestyle. Otherwise, it's like all in this decade, you know, with with regards to the track, you know, one would think almost that we would have broken like the the two hour marathon at this point, but it, it still stands. So I think it's more a matter of hitting a ceiling rather than limitless record-breaking potential in in that sport. One of the interesting theories that I kind of came across when looking at this is that in swimming, you have these like really complicated like stroke types that uh, it seems like the the more complex the action, the more room there is to kind of optimize it and Mm -hmm. find the most efficient, uh, you know, mechanical way of doing things. And so that's part of what uh, explains some of the increases. Whereas I think running, they've they've kind of started to max out the the mechanics of of doing it. Uh, And and then the technology factor, I think, is obvious. And and the fact that that you just don't have the same types of ways that technology can improve running to the same extent that something like a new suit or even goggles. They mentioned that the influx of swimmers wearing goggles in in the 1970s was like a huge change that that drastically lowered times. Uh, And it's something that we sort of take for granted or wouldn't even think about nowadays. Yeah. You look at some of the um, track records, the long jump record is still going since 1991, mm. Mike Powell, which is amazing if you think about it. And then there's others. If you go to the field, I don't know if we're talking about field or we're just talking about track. <laughs> um, the, the discus throw record, 1986. No one has been able to top it. And then on the women's side, the 800 meters is is hung around since 1983. Yeah, so if you're a young athlete trying to break records, these are the ones to to focus on. Discus. Yeah, discus or 800 meters. On today's show, with the MLB trade deadline rapidly approaching, we'll assess the deals, the rumors, and the drama. And we'll be joined by writer Lindsay D'Arcangelo to discuss the WNBA. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The MLB trade deadline is near. By Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, all trades must be finalized. Yet we've seen surprisingly few deals so far, and some of those we have seen have made headlines for uh, the wrong reasons. Here's Jeff Passan on ESPN discussing the move made over the weekend by the New York Mets. The Mets are in perpetual chaos, but it could wind up being good chaos if they can arbitrage this so that they get more back for Syndergaard than they gave up for Marcus Stroman. Jeff, as a lifelong Mets fan, how do you feel about their moves in advance of the trade deadline? Just for the record, Neil and I are both lifelong Mets fans, despite him wearing a Cincinnati Reds cap. I don't think Neil is a lifelong <laughs> Mets fan. You're I the lifelong. I am wearing a Reds hat right now. <laughs> but yes, long time uh, Mets okay, fans. Okay, fine. Uh, right now, sort of questioning that. Long yeah, yeah, yeah. tenured uh, Mets fans. On my part. Am I surprised? No, no. Not even a little surprised? Well, 
I guess I'm surprised by the actual deal itself, but I'm not surprised with the Mets doing something perplexing, if that makes sense. Um, I think it fits their sort of greater character profile. Their brand. <laughs> you know, it's weird because on paper, it's a pretty good trade. I mean, they're giving up two prospects, neither of which is, you know, in the top 100 prospects in baseball for a very good pitcher. So one would think we should applaud this. But in conjunction with them possibly selling Noah Syndergaard or selling Zach Wheeler, them recently getting rid of Jason Vargas, it's rare just in general to see a team toggling both sides of the buyer-seller line, which I I guess would be the, the mystery here. I think Stroman is under contract for another year, so you could make a very good case that this is a play for... 2020 Syndergaard also has another year so it would be logical to keep Syndergaard now if you're clearly showing your hand that you this is a next year play I mean Wheeler's a free agent so that wouldn't surprise me if they got rid of him Um, but usually when the Mets make a mistake it's by not trading someone I think back of the Jose Reyes was going to be a free agent they easily could have got something for him as a rental instead they held on to him he won the batting title and then just promptly signed elsewhere. Um, likewise, Matt Harvey, who, you know, was kind of feuding with the team and didn't want to pitch and, you know, essentially helped them go to the World Series and pitch very well in the postseason. His stock was incredibly high. I thought it made a lot of sense to move Harvey at that point, and they didn't. And then he turned out to be a very bad pitcher. It's rare to see them sort of err on this side, if, if if you do consider this an error. But I'm interested to hear Neil's thoughts on it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is sort of what you said. The, the, the trade in a vacuum isn't the worst trade ever. But then once you start kind of piling in the context that the Mets have almost no chance of making the playoffs, our model has them at 10% and basically entirely as a wild card entry if they did make the playoffs. So that means that you're basically wasting a few months of Stroman this season compared with what he could have provided to a team that was actually in contention. And then you have the situation with Syndergaard where, you know, if this is like a multi-step process where they acquired Syndergaard's replacement before actually trading Syndergaard, now they're sort of holding the bag with part one of that transaction. And what if they can't find a a partner to do the the second part of the deal with? What will they get back for Syndergaard? He's not having uh, his greatest season ever, but I think most people would feel like he uh, is one of the most talented pitchers available. But what will that do? Are they selling low on him? There's all kinds of questions around it, which makes it kind of a quintessential Mets trade, like you said, uh, Jeff. We have this system at 538 uh, that we call the Doyle number, <laughs> which we use every trade deadline. It just It's named after Doyle Alexander, who the Tigers acquired for John Smoltz in a uh, what was in retrospect kind of a disastrous trade in 1987 at the deadline. And uh, it just measures how many wins of future talent you should be willing to give up in exchange for getting one extra win of, of current talent. Uh, and, and mostly this applies to rentals. Uh, but the Mets uh, Doyle number was 0.03, which uh, means 
any number below one means that you should not be a buyer uh, because you should be valuing future wins over present ones. Uh, and so once once you get near zero, like the current Tigers, they're at zero. They have no chance of making the playoffs. It would make no sense to go out and, and get talent uh, to try to do something this year. The Mets are not that far off from that despite the, the sliver of a playoff chance that they have. Uh, and so that generally speaks to what teams should be doing in terms of buying or selling. And the Mets probably have, I haven't done the research on this, but I can't imagine there are that many more teams uh, in the years we've been doing this that had a Doyle number as low as 0.03 that went out and got one of the prized trade targets of, of the deadline. So when you wrote about the Doyle number and which teams should be buyers and sellers. Last week, the Mets had just a 4% chance of making the playoffs, and today wow, they just, are all the way up to 10%. They're just so. making a push. You know, <laughs> were we're going to eat these words. Yeah. Did they look at the 538 prediction model and say, hey, we have jumped up. Is, this is our time. We're going to do this. We can only assume yes. We have to assume yes at this point. Yeah, I'm sure the Wilpons are avid 538 readers. (laughs) We're talking about whether it makes sense to buy or sell for this year. The sellers are thinking about what they get back in return. But there's not many buyers who are buying a top prospect for a future season. But, you know, I do think that this speaks to a larger trend of... You know, it used to be strictly rentals that teams would kind of go for at the trade deadline. And now you start to have more of these considerations for future seasons, which would would lessen the impact of one of these trades that just strictly by Doyle looks disastrous because Doyle is just looking at this season. It doesn't know necessarily what, you know, how many extra future years that a, that a player is under team control. Now, I will also say that the Mets have been kind of kicking the can down the road of, well, we'll be competitive next year for probably ever since that World Series appearance. So, you know, from from 2016 on now through 2020, they've been making this promise that, well, we weren't very good this year, but wait till you see us when we're healthy slash when we have all of our pieces in place slash when we're luckier, you know, slash whatever next season. And it's just this this con job uh, that I feel like they're continuing kind of selling to the fans and on the one hand you you kind of understand where they're coming from because in the New York market I don't think that they feel like they could have a rebuilding season along the same lines as you know some of these colossal multi-year teardown jobs like the Tigers like the Royals like the Marlins you know all of these teams uh, uh, I feel like maybe the Mets are sort of thinking uh, we can't have one of those, so we'd better just do this infinite string of retooling on the fly uh, and see what happens. But it hasn't really paid that many dividends yet, and they keep sort of making these moves like they're one or two players away from being a championship contender. And that goes back to acquiring Robbie Cano and Edwin Diaz, who now is on the trade block. Right. You know, it's just this like reshuffling of deck chairs on the Titanic that seems like it'll never end. I, I think. Yeah. And they also always seem to be on the wrong side of the buy low, sell high. Like, look at Edwin Diaz. They, you know, went out and got him when he's off this incredible season, probably the best reliever in baseball. And then he comes to New York. He has a bad first half. And now they're trying to deal him. You know, it's kind of like Stroman. If, if we 
are here a year from now talking about how the Mets are trying to shop Stroman after a bad start to 2020, it wouldn't Which surprise me at will. all. That's, he's that in the likely. He, yeah, <laughs> so that'll probably happen. And he's in the middle of a career year now, so they're buying high. You combine that with their ability to kind of get the worst from players, which is, you know, a thing. You can It might be defense. I mean, look, he's a, he's a ground ball pitcher. The Mets have a bad defense. It, it wouldn't shock me if, despite, you know, I think the downgrade from leaving the AL East, it wouldn't shock me if he, you know, doesn't have the same success in New York. My big question is, why are we spending so much time talking about a completely irrelevant team when we could <laughs> yes. talk about actually <laughs> good teams? <laughs> well, but really, that's the Mets are the team that's made the interesting move like so the far. Only, the only, yeah. yeah. Which is a, the other issue here. The pace of trades as we approach the deadline has felt just super slow, way slower than normal. And that's really weird because they moved up, uh, they, they got rid of the post-July mm-hmm. 31st um, waiver trade system, which was pointlessly convoluted and weird anyway. And so, yeah, with this sense of finality to July 31st, uh, unlike previous years, I think the the intended consequence of that was for teams to feel a lot more pressure and start the the trades coming fast and furious. And like a lot of things in baseball, I feel like that Rob Manfred has kind of put in with with one uh, intended effect. The opposite has happened. Uh, And like you said, Sarah, there haven't been that many interesting moves yet. Now, again, we're taping this on Tuesday morning. The trade (laughs) deadline is Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, there's going to be so many trades (laughs) before this podcast goes. Pubs. So that's yeah. exciting. This is one way to uh, to force the yeah. We to gotta move. force the market. Um, I think it's a combination of factors, though, because you look at a team like the Giants, who were supposed to be the big sellers, and now they're on this run and they're back in contention. Whether you believe it or not, I know Neil has some thoughts yeah, on, on uh, <laughs> how good the San Francisco Giants are, but they the were Giants. supposed to be trading. Uh, Bumgarner and, and really all their all their guys worth anything, and now it looks like they're not going to do that. Likewise, I think this is also connected to some of the other trends we're seeing in baseball, particularly the game getting younger and, and teams, you know, not having as much interest in in thirty year old free agents to be or 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 veterans of of really any kind, and, and focusing on the youth and, and hoarding the prospects. Um, and in other cases, there's, you know, teams that just don't really have the piece. Like the Cubs, for instance, are in a division which is the most competitive in baseball. And, and they probably would like to go out and get some some players, but they don't really have much much to offer in terms of their farm system. Likewise, the Yankees, um, most teams are asking for guys like Gleyber Torres and Andujar and, and probably guys they don't really want to give up. Um, so I think... All that working together, and then you also have a kind of weak free agent class coming up after the big one, and and a lot of guys who've signed extensions, so there aren't as many of these sort of expiring rental contracts out there. So the teams that do have farm systems that are also contending right now include the Braves, the Astros, the Dodgers, and the Minnesota Twins. Hmm, I wonder what the significance of that is to this host of this podcast. <laughs> so I'm just saying the trade that makes the most sense is Syndergaard to the Twins. The Twins have the prospects to give up. They could, they, I mean, 
a pitcher like Syndergaard, good Syndergaard, not crappy Syndergaard of many starts this season, would be, I mean, that's that's the kind of move that would make the most sense to get this team over the hump and to go far in the playoffs. Not just make the playoffs, but like actually contend. Well, and I think that plays, they're not the only one that need pitching help. And that plays right. into things, too, is that a lot of the needs for some of these top teams, which... Incidentally, the Doyle number says that contrary to what you might think uh, in the conventional wisdom of the trade deadline, which is like, well, the teams that need uh, the most help at the deadline are the ones that, you know, are on the fringe of the playoffs and they need uh, a piece to kind of make a push and get in and then take their chances with the with the crapshoot of the postseason. Doyle basically says, no, the teams that should be the strongest buyers are the ones that are already really good because being really good already in baseball it means that you have like a 20% chance of winning the World Series. It's not like the Golden State Warriors with like a 55% chance of winning the World, uh, the World Series. <laughs> they, they were, the Warriors were so good during they the Kevin Durant <laughs> era, they had a chance of winning the World Series in addition to the NBA Finals. This is teams like the Yankees and and like the Dodgers. Uh, and I think the problem is that a lot of the teams that are in a position where they could get someone have the same needs as other teams uh, in terms of pitching and those are the types of players that are the ones that are sort of the most high impact uh, ones on the market yeah. uh, by the sellers you know uh, if you're looking for a batter you're going to have to go for like Nick Castellanos fine player by the way uh, but if you're looking for pitching it's like Noah Syndergaard is on yeah. the block now uh, and so I think that has emboldened the sellers to ask for these like outrageously high prospect halls in return uh, and it has sort of created the stalemate where you know they know there's it's like an auction for Noah yeah. Syndergaard and they know the Mets are sort of holding out to the last minute to try to get the best offer that they can but so are the Rangers with Mike Miner and Lance right. Lynn and, and uh, the Giants should be with Bumgarner and, and so forth. But they're not going to. Well, and you wonder if one of those trades happens, if one of those big name pitchers goes, will then there be yeah, there's a, a domino avalanche effect. of yeah, players? Yeah. There are really, but you make a great point. There aren't many hitters on the market, but there are also none of these contenders really needs a bat. Like that's not the problem. The Indians probably need they need like a second baseman. Right. Jason Kipnis and his 600 OPS isn't cutting Oof. it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's a great point that most of the team needs are either some kind of bench bat at most or starting and relief pitching. Yeah. And that's kind of a common thread. Short supply all and, around And baseball. you know, the Mets have a lot of those uh, players that they could they could sell away. But yeah, we'll see how it works out. So looking ahead to the rest of the season, most of the tightest races are for wildcard spots. How does our model feel about the teams clinging on to hopes of making the playoffs? Well, the Giants are a really <laughs> interesting team. I wanted to talk about them because they have gone on this really totally unexpected and completely just insane run i mean you, you've got pablo sandoval hitting walk-off home runs in extra innings and and their fans are holding a baby with one hand and catching the home run ball with the other and yeah you're just like can, can they just, script like, this can you not anymore? do that also like just i the, <laughs> protect the child yes protect yeah 
the ball is really not that important, dude. Well, you know, it is a Pablo Sandoval home run ball. So you, you got to hang on to that. <laughs> so I think the Giants, you know, um, they have a new president of baseball operations, Farhan Zaidi, who came over from the Dodgers. He, uh, he's a famously sabermetric, forward-thinking general manager type. Uh, and now he is sort of confronted in his very first season in San Francisco with this incredible dilemma uh, of what do you do when a team that's designed to tank basically or at least kind of be on the um, on the downside of this dynasty that they had and, and and supposed to be transitioning toward reloading suddenly finds itself in contention against all logic and reason and, and planning do you still proceed with the plan to kind of tear things down can you afford to our model would say that they should still be sellers I mean they have a nine percent chance of making the playoffs and that's in name only it's really just as a wild card berth so you would have to play that extra game and then go on to the division series even if you win and let's be honest the Giants are not that good of a team despite the run that they've been on here's where they rank in wins above replacement in each category this season out of the 30 major league baseball teams so they're 23rd in hitting 25th in base running they're fifth in defense that's good for them even with Bumgarner as one of their starters they are dead last in war from starting pitchers they have the sixth best bullpen again that's a a bright spot but overall they're the 24th best team in baseball according to uh, war they've been outscored by more than 40 runs during the season this is not a team that is good enough to make noise even if they do somehow make the playoffs and again our model thinks that that is extremely unlikely anyway this is the type of team that should be selling and the only reason why you would buy at this point is because of getting swept up in the emotions of this run uh that they're on and uh supposedly this management team is is supposed to be sort of coldly analytical and 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 sort of above uh, making emotion-based decisions, but that's easy to say when you're on the outside. Not so easy when when it's actually your decision to make. I, I think the the thing that's the worst in their favor is the fact that they're in the same division with the Dodgers and they're 14 games back. So the division is just completely out of the question. Whereas some of these wild card teams still have a shot at at winning the division and you know maybe getting the wild card in the one game as a consolation prize. Teams like the Indians and right, yeah you know, St. Louis and Milwaukee and, and those types. The NL West is an afterthought right now. And and just, just you know, recently in the last few days, like Arizona seems to be positioning themselves as a seller with Robbie Ray and maybe Zach Granke and some of their hitters as uh, some of the names we're hearing a lot. And they're only a game and a half behind San Francisco. So the, the, I mean, that could be they could be even in two days, and yet we have completely different approaches here. I think it does matter, you know, what you're trying to do with your fans, too, which I do think that's a component that we can't really, that's harder to evaluate, like what you think fan reaction will be to selling a super popular player like Madison Bumgarner. I think that is a part, has to be a part of the calculus for these front offices, what they're going to do and who they're going to retain. I mean, I, I think Bumgarner should go and he could be super useful again to some contending teams in in the essential division somewhere upper upper midwest maybe (laughs) yeah but um but you know he's also the face of the franchise so that's you know compounding factor yeah and that seems similar to the Mets in the sense that it's difficult to kind of consign yourself to one of these multi-year teardown processes at San Francisco where they've had like a history of great turnout great attendance and 
uh, at the beginning of this season when they were not playing well and seemed like they had little prospect toward the playoffs, they were the team that had the biggest year-over-year loss of attendance per game. Uh, And this is relative to... Even by baseball standards this year, um, the average team has lost attendance compared with last year. But the Giants have started to regain some of that attendance in, in recent um, weeks with this run that they've been on. And we, we didn't even have a chance to talk about the Red Sox, who I think are really fascinating because, A, they have no prospects, so they can't really go out and get anybody. They only have a 45% chance to make the playoffs. And yet in our model, they're the fourth best team in baseball uh, in, in terms of talent, and they're playing great right now that's another really interesting situation because the Red Sox don't tear down they they reload uh, and yet this is another one of those seasons where they've had years where they win the World Series and then immediately are not good at all uh, and 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 then they come back again and and they're right back in it so yeah um, I have I have some arguments with our model about the Red Sox and I have all seasons relative to the twins maybe <laughs> <laughs> they've I'm been a theme here. yeah yeah i I'm, i stay on brand neil but no they've been very highly rated in our model all season even when they were like legit bad and that i know our model you know sees through but come on remember the 70 game rule uh sarah Se- at 70 games half of a team's performance is luck and half of it is uh their true talent so even by like midseason, you're really not seeing the full picture about a team's talent. And the Red Sox are vindicating this. I mean, they're they're playing really well right now. Uh, and our model would have predicted that a lot more than just looking at their winning percentage to date uh, as of like a month ago. Will we see teams t- true the measures of their true talent like sometime next season or? Well, you know, it, <laughs> it could take that long. It could take that. The Mets are, are actually making that argument uh, right now. You'll see our true talent next season. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Sox are only a game out of the wild card. I mean, they're not drawing dead here. I, I think the division is probably unlikely. But, you know, one game playoff, Chris Sale, you know, maybe they like their chances there. Over the weekend, the WNBA All-Star Game made headlines when Erica Wheeler gave a heartfelt speech on the court after winning the MVP award, becoming the first ever undrafted player to claim the prize. Brittany Griner also became the first WNBA player to dunk three times in an All-Star Game. As we head into the second half of the season, the field is more open than it seems like it's ever been. Dan Hughes, coach of the Seattle Storm, said, Usually, by about the All-Star break, there's a team or two where you're saying, if they stay healthy, they're definitely separating. But this year, it's really still to be determined. We're joined by award-winning journalist and writer Lindsay D'Arcangelo, who covers the WNBA for The Athletic, to discuss this impressive WNBA field. Welcome, Lindsay. Hey, guys. So what about this season of the WNBA feels different to you? This season in particular, I feel like there's just more attention and hype. Uh, there was more anticipation leading up to the start of the season than than I've seen in years past. And the media coverage, I'd call it mainstream media, I guess, uh, sites were actually covering the league more. And so there was this, this buildup, right? And the season has not disappointed. Level of competition is at its highest peak, in my opinion, than it's been in years. And as you just said, you know, it's so tight in the standings, right? There's top three teams right now that are just vying, constantly switching out of the number one position in the standings and in my my personal rankings that I do weekly. 
So it's just, it's fun because right now you have about out of the 12 teams, I'd say nine that have a shot at not only making the playoffs, but making a run and then seeing what happens from there. There's no clear cut winner that you could say is going to is going to win it all. Lindsay, what do you think accounts for that increase in parity? Is it just more an influx of more talent in the league? Does it have something to do with all of the kind of star injuries that I know uh, that was a big talking point going into the season and, and some of them have come back, but they're still um, ha- haven't played much. It, it, does that play a role in kind of making it more wide open this season? Yeah, I think it's a few things. I think the level of talent has gotten better and Girls are starting to play basketball at younger ages and AAU programs, all of that. So there's just a level of talent is just being groomed in a way that that we've never seen before. And then you have a league that has only 12 teams and 12 spots in each team. So that's 144 players. You're getting the cream of the crop when it comes to women's basketball. There are players who get left off rosters who who could not only play in the WNBA, but they they go over and play in in Europe. And just to try to get back into the league or even get a chance to play in the league uh, the following season. You have players who get drafted in the top 15 who, who don't make the rosters. So it's just the level of talent is just at a, at a, at a place right now where it's making the league thrive. It's, you got a great product. You got great basketball to watch. And I know the injuries was a concern, but it was more about the faces of the league not being there and and maybe we'd see a drop off. I, I don't think it was so much the talent, but that even these younger players are just they're they just put it on their backs and they're just carrying. Like you mentioned, Erica Wheeler. I mean, we're seeing some young players just have a really great season, and it's doing a, a service to the league. It's doing it. You know, the fans are loving it. Who are the players that have kind of taken the torch and run with it the most in, in your mind? Like the the big breakout players of, of this season so far that just needed an opportunity. You got John Quill Jones in Connecticut. I think she had a good season last year, but this year she's just she's playing so well. She's uh, she's averaging a double double, and uh, she's she leads league in blocks. Uh, she's just she's one of the players that I, that I feel like may, maybe wasn't being overshadowed, but she's finally having that breakout year that that you've expected. Uh, Natasha Howard on Seattle is a good one to point out because. Without Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart on uh, Seattle Storm, she's just got the space to just do what she can do, and she's just an all-around player. She's third in the league in points per game. Uh, she's second in the league in steals. She's also a candidate for me for Defensive Player of the Year. And uh, and then you got you know the young player like Erica Wheeler on Indiana. What in Indiana that they're not having a great year, but man, she's making a name for herself. And what she's doing for that team, I think she's either the the first or second leading scorer on Indiana. Nafisa Collier coming in for uh, the Minnesota Lynx as a rookie. She has played every single game. She's, I, I believe, she started the majority of the games, and she just she's had a direct impact. So you know, you have you have people who are just they're carrying the league, and then you still have Elena Deladon, who who right now I think is is my MVP candidate primarily because of what how Washington looks without her on the floor she she pretty much is the cog in their offensive wheel and when she's not there it's almost like they're they're not really sure of what nobody else has stepped up in her place and when she hasn't been on the floor because of uh in, injuries she's experienced this year 
they've lost. So to me, an MVP is somebody you can't win without. And and that's why she's the top leading uh, candidate for me in that regard. So which teams are you most excited about heading into the to the second half of the season? Well, when I, uh, I wrote up uh, a little midseason thing for the athletic WNBA this week, and I mentioned five teams that I thought were going to finish the end of the season strong. And you have the top the top three teams in the league there for me are the Connecticut Sun, the Las Vegas Aces, and the Washington Mystics. I think, you know, they're, they've got, um, barring any unforeseen losing streak that, that may happen, which I don't think is going to happen, they're going to be in the playoffs and they're going to be in the semifinals and finals, um, whatever combination that is. But the other two that I'm keeping my eye on are the Seattle Storm and the Phoenix Mercury. Seattle Storm, because... I am just amazed what they've been able to accomplish this season without their top two players. It's really incredible. I mean, I think so many people wrote them off when when Stewart and Bird went down and, and here they are still playing so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're 12 and nine on the season. They're, they're sitting comfortably in the uh, sixth spot, I think it is, in the standings. I think I have them higher in my rankings, but... Yeah, I mean, they're right there. And uh, the way Natasha Howard's playing, and then you have Jordan Canada, who's a sophomore guard or second season. Uh, she's taken over for Sue Bird, and she is, she's just evolved. Uh, she, I think she's, she's leading the league in uh, steals. So she's, she's having a really good, good season, too. Yeah, and I'm I'm really impressed by you mentioned Natasha Howard playing uh, almost at like an MVP type level, but they've also gotten a lot of contributions from up and down the roster. If you look at Mercedes Russell, you mentioned Jordan Canada, Alicia Clark, Sammy Whitcomb, Jewel Lloyd. Is that just the triumph of a team that has a surprising amount of depth, and they've been able to make up the difference from losing the stars that way? They do have a lot of depth, and that's kind of the scary part because you think once Dewey and Bird come back, because they're definitely bird plans on playing longer so when they come back you're looking at what could possibly be the the beginning of of the next you know WNBA dynasty they're a scary team also one team that jumped out to me you mentioned your top five um four of those five teams were already really good last year the one that really jumps out to me is the las vegas aces who have gone from being last place in the western conference last year to first place tied for the best record in the league this season what has been the key to their sort of dramatic turnaround well, the Aces have lucked out getting number one picks three years in a row. So there's that side of it. But then you have to, you, you know, how does that all meld, meld together? You know, how do they mesh? And I think from the beginning of the season, they were winning, they were losing. It was kind of back and forth. I think they were still trying, kind of feeling that out, uh, how the combinations were going to work. And then Liz Cambage had to work up her minutes uh, to get back in basketball shape. She's carrying the load since Asia Wilson went down with an injury. The past three games, I think she's she's got uh, double doubles, so they're just they're playing well together. And you know, I I think all of us who picked them to to win it all at the beginning of the season expected a little lull maybe at the beginning of the season, but that it was going to finally come together. And and now you're seeing that happen. They're eight and two in their last ten games, and I just I think they're either going to finish in the in the number one or number two spot by the by the time the season's done. Looking ahead to next season to the Olympics, the U.S. women's national basketball team just announced that they were going to pay eight players to stay home and train 
what kind of effect might that have on the league and and just the Olympics in general have on the league and the stars being involved in that? I think this is just a brilliant, brilliant idea. And it's it's something that they probably should have done a long time ago. I just uh, wrote an article about when the WNBA got started and everything that went in behind the scenes to that. And it was actually built off of the 96 Olympic team that toured around the country back then before the Olympics, you know, playing exhibition games, just, just to train. And they drummed up all this publicity. I spoke to Val Ackerman, who was the first WNBA president. This was kind of her idea, her whole, I don't want to say goal, but it was something that she had longed to do for a very long time. And uh, so she came up with this plan to build the WNBA off of the back of the Atlanta Olympics in in, uh, 96. And so the players who played on that Olympic team came into the league. And so they already had this file and they already had some fan recognition. So it not only worked building up excitement for the Olympics, but then the anticipation for this new league that was starting. And so coming back to where we are now, it's like the perfect combination. Again, you have these stars who are familiar, uh, familiar faces who, who fans recognize, who people who don't even really may not watch the WNBA will recognize their name, their faces. And you have the ability for them to stay here, not have to go overseas, you know, really get in, in great shape to play good basketball here. And then in the meantime, promote the league. I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant move. So what are your predictions for the playoffs? Who who do you think is going to make the playoffs? Who do you think will be the league champion? I think the five teams that I that I mentioned previously are definitely going to make the playoffs. And that was uh, the, the Connecticut Sun, Las Vegas Aces, Phoenix Mercury, Seattle Storm, Washington Mystics. And then you have you have three more spots uh, after that because uh, it's uh, eight the eight top eight teams make the playoffs. So if I had to guess now going off, just looking at the the standings and and my rankings, I would say the Chicago Sky, LA Sparks. And then right now it's a toss up between the Lynx and the the Liberty. I I can see the New York Liberty maybe going on a little run, a little playoff push. Again, the top three teams for me um, would be the Connecticut Sun, the Las Vegas Aces, and the Washington Mystics. And who's going to win it all? Oof. Um... My my pick at the beginning of the season before anything got started was the was the Aces. So I'm going to have to really? I'm, I'm gonna stick with my pick and, and stay nice. with the Aces. Yeah. That's a good preseason pick, too. Well, I mean, their roster is so stacked. It's almost like, you know, on paper. Right. It's, you know, it's like an all-star team in and of itself. It's hard to go against that. Great. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, and I just welcome any opportunity to talk women's basketball. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Jeff, start us off. I was sent down a rabbit hole because of uh, what Trevor Bauer did in a recent game. Uh, was not pitching well. His manager came to take him out, and he proceeded to throw the ball over the center field wall, which in and of itself was pretty impressive. That is impressive. It. Yeah. I don't know if I could throw that far. Yeah, Jeff, is it one of those half-expected Terry Francona to be like, I'm not even mad, I'm just impressed? Kind of. But I... 
respected Bauer for it because I'm, you know, back when I played more sports than I do now, which is, you know, I don't play a lot of sports right now. I kind of ran hot. I had a temper. I was one of those kids. I was, uh, when I played tennis, I was a big racket thrower, almost to a detrimental effect. When I played video games, which is not a sport, I was a big controller breaker. I once broke a seven iron over my knee when I hit a shot into the woods. So I sympathize with anyone who takes it down on the equipment. So I wanted to go back and look at other great moments of athletes behaving badly and having these temper outbursts and specifically how they were punished for it. And I tried to find, you know, obviously there's a lot of temper tantrums, there's fights and sports, but I was trying to find sort of similar incidents where people were uh, taking the equipment and personally ejecting it from the field of play. MLB.com did a very helpful article where they compiled a list of similar pitchers throwing the ball off the field, uh, just like Bauer did. So I'll run through those, and then we'll get to some other sports. Dave Rigetti, 1986, did something very similar to Bauer. He blew a save. He gave up a grand slam. He saw his manager, Lou Pinella, coming out, and he threw the ball over the right field wall. Another huge toss from the mound area. Probably traveled similar distance to Bowers. The difference is where Francona was furious at Bauer, Lou Pinella said, quote, I was proud to see him do it, which I loved. Because Pinella, if you know, runs a little hot as well. Um, another famous incident was Rob Dibble, another relief pitcher. He had a bad performance. He actually didn't blow the save or... Um, you know, they didn't lose, the Reds didn't lose the game, but he did give up two runs. And while they're doing this sort of handshakes, he took the ball, he threw it into uh, uh, one of the decks in uh, whatever stadium they are. The problem with that was that he hit a first grade teacher uh, in the elbow, and he was later suspended four games. David Wells, another pitcher, similar incident, had a bad game. He threw the ball, it didn't clear the fence this time, it, it just landed somewhere down the baseline. But he did sort of top hour because he proceeded to throw his glove into the crowd. Byung Young Kim. This one was my favorite. If you remember the 2001 World Series, he had a disaster of a World Series. I think he blew two games, gave up walk-up homers twice in that series. And he, the next season, 2002, happened to have an interleague game where the Diamondbacks were playing at the Yankees. And the Yankee fans were just giving it to him relentlessly the entire game. And he completed a save in that game, probably the only time on this list where someone threw the ball into the crowd out of joy or <laughs> uh, sort of revenge. Joy slash revenge. <laughs> someone handed him the ball and he proceeded to chuck it all the way to Monument Park where it landed on a net. So that's baseball. Pitchers do it a lot. I was like, let's, let's, let's go on. Let's see what happens in other sports. So let's go with the NFL. The NFL throwing the ball into the stands happens quite frequently. It's a $6,000 fine. Interestingly, they do not fine players for handing a ball to a fan, only if it's thrown or kicked. If you do it once, it's $6,000. you do it twice, it's $12,000. Sort of similar to Byung Young Kim, it's generally done when you do something good, not something bad. So football is a lot of kind of innocuous incidents the the one thing i do want to mention since we're on it is marcus peters of the kansas city chiefs who really topped all his peers um he got called for defensive holding against the jets on a two-point conversion and he proceeded to throw the penalty flag into the crowd it, it was really amazing the funny thing about that was he left the field just presuming that he got ejected he actually didn't get ejected 
<laughs> and he came back on the field and he wasn't wearing socks. <laughs> and then he got suspended by the team for leaving the field. So that one was just a hilarious sequence of events. Let's go to the NBA. The NBA is actually stricter than the NFL when you throw or kick a ball into the crowd. I'm not totally sure why. For instance, Luka Donich, the rookie for the Mavericks, he got fined $10,000 for kicking the ball into the crowd. If you watch the video, the ball just kind of, he's under the rim. The ball kind of falls. He, he just does like a little like soccer move, you know. He's from Europe. He kicks it straight up. It deflects off the back of the, the backboard and goes into the crowd. It really, you know, $10,000. He got ejected. It, it felt a little extreme. Paul George kind of outdid him a little while ago. He he kicked a ball hard into the crowd, and he hit a girl in the face. Oh, um, he was fined $15,000 for that. But he actually sent the girl flowers, and he said, Lindsay, I'm sorry for the ball hitting you at the game Saturday. It was not intentional. I hope you're feeling okay, Paul George. So he kind of made up for it. Another interesting one in the NBA, Kyrie Irving was fined $25,000 for throwing the ball into the stands after the game. What had happened there was the Boston was not winning. It was kind of a blowout. Jamal Murray of the Nuggets had 48 points. And in, you know, the final seconds of the NBA game where they're just kind of letting the clock run down, he chucked up a three. Yeah, that's an accepted. I feel like in the closing seconds of a game, it's an accepted move to throw the ball up and see what happens. Right, but he was trying to get a 50-point game. Maybe Murray wanted to get the ball. This part's unclear. Maybe Murray wanted the ball from his game, and he threw it into the crowd. And then he said, quote, after the game, the ball deserves to go into the crowd after a bullshit moment like that. (laughs) Wow. There are a couple other famous incidents. Don Nelson punting the ball is a classic YouTube one. I think uh, there's one by Chuck Person. Uh, punted a ball twice into the crowd, as in he punted it into the crowd, they threw it back, he grabbed it, he punted it again. (laughs) Um, And that one's pretty hilarious if you watch the video because the announcers are acting like he just shot the other team. Uh, They're just so aghast by his behavior there. I, I looked at hockey. There's not a lot of clear hockey incidents. I mean, really, if you hit the puck into the crowd, it's a penalty regardless there's also, it's, I guess it's not that dramatic, but hockey players being the crazy people that they are, they've come up with ways to sort of outdo these other sports. Antoine Roussel of the Stars took a stick from the opponent and threw that stick into the crowd, which was hilarious. And it proceeded to have a great, I think it was Blues and Stars fans, had a tug of war over the stick that was really lasted way too long. And there's great video of that. And then the last one I wanted to mention, just because it's funny and no one got hurt, was David Ferrer in tennis. In tennis, you'll see guys hit the ball into the crowd on occasion. Uh, you know, I, I remember seeing Andy Roddick do it after like a long rain delay at the U.S. Open, and he tried to basically hit it out of Arthur Ashe. That's pretty common. They also do the thing where they hit the balls into the crowd after the game when they win. But David Ferrer was serving, and he's losing. This was at the Sony Erickson Open. And a baby starts crying in the middle of his serve, and uh, he loses the point. He serves anyway, despite the baby crying, which was really a loud baby because you could hear it on the court in the broadcast. And then when he got a ball back, he kind of flicked it underhand in the direction of the baby that was crying. (laughs) And 
I mean, that's just remarkable on so many levels, but it led to one of the great AP headlines of all time, which I took a screen grab of, and it just simply says, David Ferrer annoyed with baby. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's my summary of... Um, unwanted sports projectiles i mean a lot of those are pretty funny and you know there are funny things that happen i feel like when you throw a ball into the stands and it's not a tennis ball like they do when they are supposed to do that that sucks like someone's gonna get hurt you're doing that knowing that there are people there and someone's gonna get hurt and i I just like you're playing a game stop being a baby (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Unless you are that baby, yeah, right. <laughs> in, the in which dance. case, also stop maybe, being a baby. Well, <laughs> maybe during stay people's at home. serves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but that's why you you have to at least admire the Bauer thing. He aimed it at the uh, the batter's eye. Uh, it was an exceptionally long throw, so uh, it, it's not like it had the the full force of a ninety five mile per hour fastball behind it. I do like how Indians infielder Mike Freeman flinches when Bauer turns around and rears back to throw. Yeah. Uh, he he thought like is this guy going to throw this ball directly at me and Trevor Bauer has a history of unorthodox behavior we'll just say <laughs> so this guy john boy on twitter he he does these breakdowns of you know incidents controversial incidents that happen in baseball he does lip reading off of it and so in this one you can clearly see he, he kind of gives voice to it when uh francona comes out there and says what the f- is wrong with you <laughs> and then bauer like you know puts his hand on francona uh and, and and is like you know i'm sorry this isn't me i made a mistake uh you know i'm sorry and francona is having none of it. it is like get the fuck out of here you psycho <laughs> uh, i mean fair whereas lupinella would have been like great uh why'd you throw to center field the fans yeah right over here. You probably want to their fault uh the, the other thing that's great i wanted to ask you jeff because when you started talking about hockey it made me think of sort of the inverse of this. So this was taking objects that belong on the playing field and sending them off the playing field. But there's another... Yes, those were the rules for this very scientific uh, analysis (laughs) of sports behavior that I did. Well, yes. So there is a related but almost inverse uh, strain of play, which is taking things that don't belong on the field and throwing them onto the field as a tantrum, which made me think of the devil's coach, Robbie Fatorik throwing a bench from the, uh, like picking up the bench uh, in hockey and throwing it onto the ice. Uh, and, and there's a number of those. So which, which is better, which is like a more satisfying way to uh, express your displeasure to take a bunch of equipment from the bench and throw it onto the field or take equipment that belongs on the field and throw it off the field. I think definitely take equipment that's not on the field and put it on the field to play. Like, then nobody gets hurt. That's the key. You can have a tantrum. That's fine. I personally will think less of you, but whatever. You probably don't care. But don't hurt people. Don't let anyone get in the way of that. Like, take your, throw the bench on the field, throw the bats and the balls and everything, throw the Gatorade container. That's fine. I don't care about that. Just don't throw things into the stands. So you would be more in favor of Wally Backman style. Always. Like just grab the bats, grab every piece of equipment you can out of the dugout and just throw it on the field. You didn't even need to finish to the sentence. I am in favor of Wally Backman style. <laughs> the, the gold standard there, Neil. And, and you know, when we have a famous uh, notable incident of this, maybe I'll do another rabbit hole and, and, and I'll do what you, what you suggested, the reverse. 
but it has to be Bobby Knight throwing the chair is probably the most oh, right. yeah, exactly. most famous. It should be noted that I've done two of these athletes behaving badly rabbit holes, and Trevor Bauer has now appeared in both of them. The other one was strange <laughs> off-field injuries, and of course he was on there for injuring his hand while repairing a drone. Oh, right, the the drone injury. Anyway, we can leave that there. <laughs> That will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, subscribe. And be sure to review and rate the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Lindsay, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.